0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for tuning in and making us part of your day. Well, coming up on this Thursday edition, President Biden plans to speak to the nation tonight, addressing the wars in Israel and Ukraine. But is the United States, under the Biden administration, bringing stability to the world or facilitating chaos? I think the administration is reaping what it sows. What I mean by that is, Ronald Reagan famously said, peace is through strength. If Iran and Hamas had been afraid of what the response would be, they never would have made the attack in the first place. That was Texas Senator John Cornyn yesterday on Capitol Hill. How is the message of weakness affecting America's security, both here and abroad? Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, a member of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, will join me in just a moment. Earlier today, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, Rashid Sunak, traveled to Israel to show support for the Jewish state. Well, later at a joint press conference, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel is united, but that the the unity must go further if we're to rid the world of Hamas.
1: I've never seen the people of Israel as united, more united than they are now. But we need that unity across the board and continuous support as we prosecute and win this just war against the modern barbarians, the worst monsters on the planet.
0: This coming Sunday night, Family Research Council will be hosting a special stand with and pray for Israel town hall meeting at Village Church in Blythewood, South Carolina at 6 p.m. Eastern time. one of our featured guests for that event is former Congresswoman and presidential candidate Michelle Bachman. She'll join me later in today's program to share why we must pray for and stand with Israel. You know, history is a great instructor. We can gain a better understanding of what is actually happening today if we know the history of what has happened in the past. It's helpful to know the events and the actions of the past that shape the course for present-day events. And we're going to explore the modern state of Israel and the mandate for Palestine and the global policies that have brought us to this moment with Dr. A.J. Nolte, professor at Regent University. And finally, as the images of the atrocities in Israel combined with the growing drumbeat of global conflict saturate the news, you know, parents and grandparents need to be paying attention. I think we need to be having some conversations with our children and grandchildren. FRC's Dr. Jennifer Bowens, a clinician providing trauma-focused treatment for children, joins me for that important discussion a little bit later. Our word for today comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, did you notice what was sandwiched between allowing no corrupt word, meaning worthless or words lacking grace to come out of your mouth, and that bitterness and wrath? Well, it's clear instruction to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Our words, whether worthless or idle or bitter or angry, grieve the Holy Spirit, which keeps us from living in the fullness of the Spirit of God. To join me each morning for a short devotional based upon our Bible reading plan, you can go to TonyPerkins.com. And by the way, to get a copy of our just-released seven-day journey through Ephesians, you can go to FRC.org. Slash Ephesians to get a copy of that just came out this week and uh, go ahead and get your copy. Go to frc.org/slash Ephesians. Well, following a whirlwind whirlwind trip to Israel, President Biden is back in the White House today and expected to deliver a primetime address to the nation from the Oval Office this evening. Now, White House officials say the president will request Congress. Uh, give close to $100 billion, with the money earmarked for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the southern border. The president drew criticism yesterday in Israel when he announced plans to send $100 million to aid for Palestinian civilians, seemingly with no conditions regarding hostages held captive by Hamas. Uh, Joining me now to discuss this and more is Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. He serves on three Senate committees, including the Senate Committee for Homeland Security and Government Affairs. Senator Johnson, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to see you. Tony, hope you're well. Uh, Doing quite well, thank you, given all things uh, considered. You know, the president plans uh, a speech tonight to the nation that will include significant
2: spending. Uh, Your reaction— well, first of all, I do appreciate the Biden administration's uh, pretty much unequivocal support for the state of Israel after, after they've been attacked. Uh, you can't—it you can, was a barbaric slaughter. I mean, there's no other way of uh, laying that out. And what the civilized world has to do is they have to rally behind Israel and uh, defend its right to defend itself and also hopefully destroy Hamas. Um, I think most Americans want to support Israel. I think it's shocking— it's actually astonishing to see what's happening in our u- university system. I think the way the news media handled the, the, the self bombing from Hamas of the uh, hospital in, in Gaza was uh, just, I mean, it is just absolutely disgusting. Uh, what the the mainstream media, the the way they glommed down to that and blamed Israel right away. So again, the the main thing the U.S. has to do right now is show unwavering support for Israel's right to defend itself. We we deliver billions of dollars every year in terms of uh, defensive uh, support for Israel. I don't think there's a real emergency right now. There are certainly certain uh, weapons, uh, missiles for the Iron Dome, that type of thing that we should certainly be delivering to them. But Uh, I don't think there's any huge emergency in terms of providing billions and billions and billions of dollars to to Israel right now. Are are we funding both sides? I mean, you've made uh, a—before
0: this war broke out in Israel, you were raising concerns about the $6 billion that was—had been frozen, but the Biden administration unfroze, releasing it to Iran. Now, I know they haven't tapped into that yet, but they know it's coming.
2: The Obama administration and the Biden administration—you know, first, Obama, with the Iran nuclear agreement, really transferred over $100 billion, over 100 billion billion to the, the largest state-sponsored terror, Iran. Uh, where do you think they spent that money? Not, not for the benefit of the Iranian people. Uh, the, the Biden administration, I think, quietly, has also transferred through, again, relax, relaxation of sanctions or allowing Iran to sell oil, also billions of dollars, to Iran. Where do you think they're spending that money? So I think it's absolutely true that the Biden—that Democrat administrations have helped fund uh, this level of terrorism. I think it's almost—it's indisputable. Uh, And they need to be held accountable for what they've done. So, so Senator Johnson,
0: help me understand, why do you think this administration and the Obama administration, they've had such a blind spot when it comes to
2: Iran? I can't explain it. Uh, Again, they're trying to buy peace. Uh, you don't buy peace. Uh, as Reagan said, I, you, I heard him quote you earlier, you cheat peace through strength. Uh, everything the Biden administration has done, I mean, I've, I've said this in the past, if you were asked to develop a, a, or devise a strategy to destroy America, to weaken this country, you could come you could not come up with a better game plan than what President Biden has been implementing. Wide-open borders, flood of illegal immigrants, deadly drugs, the embarrassing and dangerous surrender in Afghanistan, which emboldened Putin, emboldens Xi, emboldens Iran and Hamas, Uh, 40-year high inflation, a war on fossil fuel, which contributes to that inflation. I mean, everything that the Biden administration has done—and quite honestly, what radical leftism does around the world is destroy things. I mean, name something that radical leftism has ever built— It just destroys. And yet, unfortunately, because our university are chock full of radical leftists, our news media is, Americans just are not aware of the extent that radical leftism has infiltrated every institution of this country and is literally causing America to be circling the drain here. We've got to wake up fast.
0: You know, I'm, I'm still thinking. I can't come up with anything that they've built. You're, you're right. They've hijacked a lot of stuff, and they've uh, tanked it, destroyed it. But I can't think of anything they've built. Maybe propaganda machines, but that's probably about it. Uh, you serve on the Homeland Security uh, Committee in the Senate, and you just made reference to the southern border. Given what we saw in Israel, what we're seeing, the global instability, and we see the volume of people coming across our nation— Is there growing concern on Capitol Hill about national
2: security and what this open border presents to us? Well, there has been on the Republican side ever since the Biden administration opened our borders. Unfortunately, we have not had uh, support from Democrats. So, you know, I've had three amendments, two in committee, one on the floor, to just complete the fence that we already bought and paid for that's costing us more not to build than to build it. And every Democrat, I think, except for Joe Manchin, voted against that funding or against building that wall. So we have not had partners to actually secure our border. Now, now you have uh, uh, Christopher Wray saying, hey, this may be a threat. Uh, Biden might actually be admitting it as well. No kidding, 1.7 million known Godaways. Now, we don't know who they are. We just know that 1.7 million people crossed the border illegally and are now in this country. You think there might be a terrorist or two in that 1.7 million people? Over 150 nations have been represented by people coming to this country Illegally, We've got hundreds of people on the terror watch list. This is has been and is an enormous national security threat. And yet, uh, old Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorka, says, well, it's not really a crisis. It's not a problem. It's, it's a challenge. But it's, it's a challenge that they think they are rising to by spending more money efficiently processing and dispersing people that they do encounter. Don't even call it apprehensions anymore. It's just encounter, process, and disperse. Total of—with uh, the known gotaway is about six million people. That's a problem. Senator, I think it's, it's very significant in that the
0: policies of the administration, if, you know, you turn yourself in, they just give you a sheet of paper and give you a court date, maybe six, eight months later, and they let you go into the country. It's, in, it's important because those one point—that 1.7 million gotaways, these are people who are evading detection because they had something to hide, many of them. So, I think 1.7 million— That's a lot of bad people, potentially in that number, that could do grave damage to this country. As you move forward in negotiations in this—and I know you're in the minority in the Senate—but as you move forward in negotiations for Ukraine funding, Israel funding, is there going to be uh, strong negotiations from the Republicans as it pertains to our southern border?
2: we've got a number of senators working on this. and you know, my advice to the, to the group that's working on this is: do not negotiate uh, border security away. Uh, we can't have half measures. Uh, you know, the House passed to H.R. 2, which is a strong border security bill. Uh, that's pretty much the minimum. We, we, we need to raise the standard from credible fear to pretty much what the asylum standard is, because most of the people coming here aren't even claiming asylum, uh, but all they have to say is, well, I'm afraid to go home. Well, come on in. I don't even think they have to say that anymore. We have such an open border, which is just an invitation for more which is why we've gone from what Jay Johnson said, a 1,000 a day in 2014, where he said that was a really bad day for CBP, to over 10,000. Wow. An order of magnitude worse. And again, we have a president and secretary of Homeland Security that won't even acknowledge it's a, it's a problem. It's just a challenge. Senator, I want to thank you for taking time
0: uh, to join us today. And obviously, this is something, as we see what's unfolding in the Middle East, what we saw happening in Israel, I think more and more Americans are going to demand something on our southern border. Appreciate you uh, being uh, on top of the issue. Stay well. All right. Senator Ron Johnson of uh, Wisconsin. If you've not yet uh, responded to our Washington Watch poll, now's the time to do it. Text POLL to 67742. Let us know how you watch or listen to Washington Watch. It'll help us going forward all right coming up next frc's dr jennifer balance an expert on trauma focused treatment will join me to discuss the worldwide violence in the bloodshed that we're seeing in the news constantly and we need to be paying attention to how our children are processing this our children and grandchildren she's going to have that conversation with us next here on washington watch don't go away a lot more washington watch still ahead
4: Get this free guide at frc.org slash to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this uh, Thursday. As I mentioned uh, before the break, if you've not yet responded to the Washington Watch poll, today is the day. You can help us decide where to put our efforts and resources in expanding the reach of Washington Watch. And so all you need to do, Simply text the word "poll" to 67742. You'll get a link, and then you'll get a list of uh, different ways that you can watch or listen. Or you can go to TonyPerkins.com, and under Resources, you can uh, click on the poll, and it'll take you to the site. Well, in light of the the recent war in Israel that uh, started with a terrorist invasion that brought horrific images of violence and bloodshed to our screens, it was— in the news, but the more graphic stuff is actually online, and the, the terrorists themselves put that out. And it, it, it's it's a reminder that we live in a broken and a sinful world. And, and really, today, we have no filters for that. I think we're seeing more and more just how evil the world really is. But we're also seeing that in movies, and I think, you know, par- adults tend to be kind of desensitized to this. And you know as we've been discussing this and we've we've had conversations about this before, but many of our viewers and our listeners have children in their homes they have grandchildren and how are our children processing this? are we paying attention to that because these things can have profound impacts upon our our children because they don't process things the same way that we do so Joining me now to talk about this is someone who has had extensive experience in crisis counseling, trauma counseling. She is FRC's director for the Center for Family Studies, Dr. Jennifer Bowens. Jennifer, welcome back to Washington Watch. Always good to see you. You too. Now, you have extensive—you're uh, a clinician. You've got extensive experience in post-trauma counseling, uh, going back to uh, 9-11, Katrina, and so, you know— whether it's a man-made disaster or natural disaster, you know, our children are affected by these things. And and, and we live in an age, instant information, a lot of graphic stuff out there. Are there concerns that our children may be traumatized by some of the things that they see and we're not noticing it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the problem in our day is that kids, m- most kids and little kids have access to social media, So if we're not watching what they're watching, um, we don't know what they're being exposed to. And they have a little handheld device that lets them access all kinds of imagery that we, our brains, weren't exposed to, our souls weren't exposed to.
0: Well, that, that raises a couple of issues. One, we really need to be monitoring what our kids are watching.
1: That's right. That's right. And um, I think it's important for our viewers to understand that um, the difference between big T and little T traumas, that's one way we distinguish it in the trauma field. And the big T traumas are those things that cause what most people know about post-traumatic stress. Those things are, you know, unfortunate events like what we're watching today with the with this war. Um, and those produce... Uh, a neurological, physiological response in our bodies and certainly in our psyches and our spirits. Um, and those are, you know, we we can all recognize that that's very traumatic, but what we don't always recognize are those little T traumas, and those also have an impact on our lives. Um, and those are things like watching too much television, looking at these kinds of images without... Um, without inviting God into the right, process, too. Right, right, right. right. Um, and those things have a low-grade uh, effect on our on our beings. And there's a lot of learning that goes on when we have that kind of big physiological dump in our brain right. <laughs> of chemicals.
0: So, so we, we have these graphic images in the reports coming out of, of Israel, which have dominated the news. But then— kind of the, along with that we have this global instability and there's talk of you know we've talked about it here on the program how the world appears to be spinning out of control and you've got China you've got Russia and in, in in your little ears and I've learned with five kids uh, that are mostly all adults now but during the years they pick up on pieces and they're they're listening constantly listening but As you said, unless we're unpacking this and processing it in light of scripture, this could do some serious damage.
1: Absolutely. And that's why I bring up the little t traumas, because we know after 9-11 that there was a direct correlation between those people who watched a lot of media exposure and the level of trauma responses they had. Maybe they didn't rise to the PTSD level, but they had a response that was negative. So we have to look at these events as a learning opportunity. Something is being learned mm-hmm. one way or the other. And if we in our parenting are going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit because we're going to have hard times. There's no doubt about it. As we get closer to the end of things, right, right. men's Jesus hearts fail. Their hearts will fail them for fear. So yeah. we have to learn how to deal with fear.
0: Okay, give us some practical steps as yeah. parents and grandparents. What should we be doing?
1: Well, one of the things that we know from data is that um, social support, connection, those are huge um, aspects to mitigating a trauma response. So, to me, when we look in the spiritual. Uh, aspect of trauma, we need to be connecting with God. We need to teach our kids how to connect with God in the moment, in the in the midst of feeling fear. How do we receive comfort from the Holy Spirit? So,
0: so just kind of going back where yeah. Jesus said, do not fear. And, and, and as he actually talked about the end times, do not be deceived. These things will occur. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's walking our children and grandchildren through this in light of Scripture and what the promises of God's Word says.
1: Yeah. A lot of times when I'm with people that are newer to discernment, the gift of discernment, which is something that we really need to have right now, right? Yeah. And it's, it is key for our day. Um, I, I will say, okay, what are you sensing right now as we walked in this room? What are um, you—you know, we we know this in a practical way. Tony, you're always speaking to people, and you learn how to read the room, even when you can't see them because of the lights. But you can feel when people are engaged with you or when they're not. And that's the same thing in the in other aspects of life. We need to learn to understand what what is ours, what is something that we need to resolve with the Lord, and what is something that's going on in our environment that we can can be a point of prayer. Yeah. and um, and we need to teach kids that because fear has been released like, like an atom bomb. Well,
0: because fear <laughs> allows you to be manipulated yes. more easily, and so it's, it's, so be be discerning and, and even asking questions of our children, grandchildren, how they're how they're processing these things. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bowens, we're out of time, but it's always <laughs> great to talk with you. And 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 you know what? When you're in, I'm just I'm reading the room. You're just you're always on target. Love to have you on the program. Thanks. All right. Folks, we need to be praying and and do do pay attention to what those little ears are hearing. When we come back, we're going to talk about standing with and praying for Israel with Michelle Bachman. So don't go away. We're back with more after this. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this Thursday. Well, as Israel prepares for what many expect to be a long and protracted war following a brutal, barbaric terrorist attack, voices on the left continue to seek any opportunity, any opportunity to criticize the war-torn Jewish nation, even as it battles terrorists who uh, question its very right to exist— Now, for decades, the United States has stood by the nation of Israel as its strongest and closest ally. Now, many on the left continue to push for this support to stop. So the question is, why must the United States remain steadfast in its support for Israel? Joining me now to discuss this, former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, who served on the House Intelligence Committee during her time in Congress. She is now the dean of the regent university school of government and she is also the chair of the frc board of directors michelle welcome back to the program
5: tony thank you so much a privilege to be with you
0: i I want to play a clip from yesterday i was actually i was up on capitol hill yesterday i just uh, i i missed this protest i was actually in uh the uh congressional building in which this took place yesterday afternoon but uh, pro-Palestinians came in, a pro-Palestinian rally, and uh, Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib had this to say. Play clip number eight.
6: And so I'm telling you right now, <laughs> President Biden, no, all America's
5: with you on this one. And you need to make and understand that. We are literally, literally watching people commit church. Nothing. We will remember this. But all of you, you need to know, I swear to God, you are on the right side of history.
0: Michelle, how do you respond to that? That is a United States congresswoman.
5: Yeah. In a government building. And she she was clearly explaining that she was in full support of Hamas. And what Hamas is doing. Hamas is Gaza. Gaza is Hamas. It doesn't mean that every person who lives in Gaza is agrees with the Hamas government, but essentially it is a dictatorship. It is it is the Islamic state of Gaza. And she's in complete agreement with what they're doing with these crocodile tears. What she was doing, Tony, was was propaganda. She was helping Hamas advance propaganda in the US Capitol. She should be ashamed. Um, There should be censure of her. But the other thing is, she was asked very clearly by Fox News earlier uh, what she felt about the babies that were killed and the individuals who were killed by Hamas. She wouldn't even dignify that question with a response. So she's very one-sided, because she is pro-Hamas. She's been pro-Hamas since the day that she came into the United States Congress. And we—anyone, in my view, anyone who supports a terrorist organization— themselves as a terrorist. They're a sympathizer aiding and abetting. She's aiding and abetting by advancing the propaganda of the Hamas network here in the United States government. She is inciting violence through her words. It's very dangerous, and there need the Republicans need to wake up and say something, but there needs to be a censure in the U.S. House.
0: Uh, M- Michelle, I mean, for years, there's been differences between the political parties. But there are some lines that, you know, haven't been crossed that we've come together. And one of those has been the the, the long-time bipartisan oh. support for our ally Israel. I, I want to ask yes. you something, and, and you are—you have great spiritual insight. What does this tell us about the spiritual state of America? Not just as one congresswoman, but the fact that she's been elevated to a position of influence, and she's not alone. There are others. Yeah. What does this say about the spiritual state of America?
5: Well, it's not a good signal, and it shows really the failure of cultural diversity. We were all told diversity is our strength. Diversity of religion is our strength. That isn't true. That isn't what the founders said. The founders believe very strongly in religious tolerance, but on the foundation of a Judeo-Christian heritage. That's been pushed out by these leftists, by people like Rashida Tlaib, and the goal of Hamas— is to conquer. They wanna conquer Israel. They wanna conquer the globe with Islam. She's a part of that same view. They, they don't just want to have tolerance. They want to push out the Judeo-Christian view here in the United States. She's a part of that effort. She's a part of that effort in her home state, but also in the U.S. Capitol. It's really disturbing to watch this, because this is, this is someone who is advancing a movement that uses violence to achieve its ends. It isn't debate. I've gone on many uh, trips and tours to Israel where we had bipartisan support of the Jewish state, both Democrat and Republican. Not anymore. There's a real change Mm -hmm. that's happened in the United States Congress, and there's a real change that's happened throughout America. And that's where Christians need to wake up, too, and take stock of what's going on, because our young people— Our Christian young people are being targeted with this propaganda that's being put forward that really Israel and Hamas, they're co-equal partners. Israel's just as much as fault as Hamas. This is an absolute lie. And so we're swimming in a sea of lies. And it's important that churches, that Christian schools and universities teach the truth of what the Bible says about Israel and also the historic truth the political truth, the legal truth about Israel's right to her land. And uh, there is never any justification. It doesn't matter what it is. There's no justification for what Hamas has done and is doing even today to Israel.
0: Well, and that is going to be the focus of our prayer time and our conversation on Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You're going to be there. General Jerry Boykin will be there as we have a special town hall event. Stand with and pray for Israel. Michelle, I look forward to seeing you there.
5: I do, too. Thanks so much,
0: Tony. And folks, you can join us too. Go to prayvotestand.org slash townhall to find out how you can join us this coming Sunday night as we stand with and pray for Israel. Don't go away. We're back after this. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for joining us on this Thursday. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. Uh, Contact information for our guest. And if you've not done so yet, uh, we've been asking our viewers and listeners this week to to help us understand better what um, platforms you're watching or listening to FRC uh, or to Washington Watch on. It's, uh, it's helpful as we plan our path forward. Uh, you know, we, we realize we live in a cancel culture, and we've got to expand the ability to get this news and information from newsmakers into the hands of SAGEcons, the spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives in this country. So if you'll take that poll, it will be very helpful. All you need to do, text POLL to 67742. That's the word POLL, P-O-L-L to 67742 and you'll get a link just fill it out or you can go to tonyperkins.com and under resources you can find the same survey or poll so that'd be very helpful so if you do that i would greatly appreciate it well many christians have studied and know their old testament history with god's promises to abraham and his covenant with the israelites but what about the history of modern israel Ruled for centuries by the Ottoman Empire, a British outpost after World War I, finally established as a modern nation in 1948 following the horrors of the Holocaust. As Christians, what is our commitment to Israel, and how should we approach Israel's ongoing conflicts from a biblical perspective? I think we need to start with understanding the history and how we got here. So joining me now to discuss this, Dr. A.J. Nolte, chair of the Government uh, Graduate Program and director of the International Development MA Program at Regent University. is also a member of Virginia-Israel Advisory Board. Dr. Nolte, welcome back to Washington Watch.
6: Thanks, Tony. It's great to be here again.
0: So, as I mentioned, many of us know our Old Testament history. God gave the land to uh, to Israel— but uh, less about the 20th century history of Israel and the actions and decisions that brought us to that point. Help us understand the more modern history of Israel, the Palestinian mandate, and and how we arrived at this point.
6: Okay, very good. Um, And I will try to be as as succinct here as possible. There's a lot of history, and it can get dense. Um, But I do want to start, actually, with a brief dip into the 19th century, because one of the terms that you'll often hear thrown around in this discussion of modern Israel is Zionism. Um, And especially with the UN, you know, often talking and some of the the Palestinian activists talking about Zionism as racism. I think we need to quickly define that because it's hard to understand the story of Israel without it. So Zionism at its core is the idea that uh, the Jewish people ought to have their own nation state. Uh, so it is a subspecies of nationalism. That aspect is true, um, but it's it's a nationalism that is, I would say. Um in, in many ways, kind of civically oriented. Um, and it is about what it is, is trying to answer the question of what does it mean to be a Jew in the modern world? And this question is actually first prompted not by uh, pogroms um, and not by the ghetto, but by the fact that Jews in Europe were emancipated, that they're given their full civil rights in many European countries. But this then leads to the question for a lot of Jews, okay, so we've been you know, a people that were apart in a largely Christian context, but now that we have secularism, now that we have nationalism, what does it mean to be a Jew? Do we assimilate, um, or do we seek for our own national identity as all these other groups, the Italians, the Germans, um, you know, the French are, are seeking for their own self-determination. Is that a path that we should go down? And so Zionism is the answer that, that, that takes that second option. Okay. And so, um, Theodore Herzl, of course, is one of the, the thinkers. who's the, the most uh, integral into that. There's also another thinker. I unfortunately can't remember the gentleman's first name, but his last name is Pinsker. And he argues for what he calls auto-emancipation. It's really important in understanding Israel. Pinsker's idea is, regardless of what anybody else does, no one will free the Jews except for the Jews. We must emancipate ourselves. Um, And so it's a a real sort of self-determination, self-reliant idea, and that is fundamental as well to Zionism. So we ought to have our own nation, our own state, and uh, it's something that we ought to build ourselves. And so you start seeing—go
0: ahead. I was going to say, along the way, though, they they had the support of of Christians uh, in this idea of Zionism, did they not?
6: Yes, they did. Um, And particularly, I would say Christians in the Anglo American. Uh, world. Uh, Anglo-American Christianity and particularly Protestantism, but the Catholics have, have kind of come alongside this as well, have always had a very strong emphasis on the Bible, have always taken the Bible seriously, and have always taken the Old Testament seriously, You know, even going back to the Puritans. And so it's not surprising that some of the earliest, what we would now call today, sort of anachronistically, but not entirely, Christian Zionists come from Anglo, the Amer- Anglo-American tradition. Um, one book I would recommend to your readers is uh, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, History of the U.S. and the Middle East by Michael Oren. Um, and Oren talks about how some of the first American missionaries—Levi uh, Parsons is one—who are going into the Middle East are uh, going in with the idea that um, it is God's will that there should be a, a Jewish state restored in what is then Ottoman Palestine. Keep in mind, this is the 1820s. So for you um, theology and history nerds, that is before John Nelson Darby and premillennial dispensationalism, and that is before the Schofield Study Bible—that So, you know, this isn't just an end times thing. This is something that is deeply within the DNA of American Christianity, going back as far as the 1820s, and I would argue further. It's
0: just in alignment with God's word. I mean, we, we see God's promises for these people, and we come in alignment with God's promises.
6: Is it not? Yes. And so that's, you know, the the argument from a theological perspective. Um, And one of the people who I've heard make this very eloquently is uh, Father Gerald McDermott, who's an Anglican priest. And he says, show me in the New Testament where the promise of the land is abrogated. In other words, where the promise of the land is is taken away. And, you know, the answer that people have is, is you can't unless you're going to sort of stretch and twist Scripture outside of its original meaning. Um, and so that that is the, the theological justification. So both in Britain, you know, through the Anglican Church, through the Church Mission to the Jews or CMJ, um, through many passionate evangelicals in England and in the United States, there's a strong reservoir of Christian support for what ends up becoming a a Zionist project. In fact, I'll give you one quick anecdote, and then we can move on to the 20th century. But um, Benjamin Netanyahu, in his memoir, talks about how when Theodore Herzl uh, was dying, at his bedside was an Anglican priest who was committed to this uh, Zionist project. Um, And actually, Netanyahu's when he talks about Christians, he really gets this and he really understands this history uh, in a way that oftentimes people don't.
0: E- even the Christians today, many in the church yes. today don't understand this history and its alignment with Scripture. They've, they've listened too much to the critics on the left thinking mm-hmm. this is just some kind of radical sect within the evangelical movement.
6: Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and it's not.
0: So bring us up to, to, to what we see unfolding today.
6: So briefly, um, you start seeing uh, immigration as far back as the 1880s. Of course, there's always a Jewish population in um, that that area of what is today the modern nation state of Israel, um, what at the time is Ottoman Palestine. Um, but there's there's always been a Jewish population there. Uh, and you see some uh, Zionist immigration. Um, then, of course, after World War II, it falls into the British mandate, Um and during the British mandate, there's the uh, Balfour Declaration, which is a declaration made by Lord Balfour, uh, that the um, the Jews uh, ought to have their own state uh, within uh, the land of what is then Ottoman Palestine. Now, one of the problems that you have with the British mandate is um, the British somewhat promised the land to—different British uh, officials promised different chunks of the land to different people at the same time. Uh, And so I would say the British never really had a coherent policy uh, for what they were going to do with the mandate. Um, But then, of course, you have the second major event that is formative and foundational for modern Jewish identity. The first was the emancipation, which led to Zionism. The second was the Holocaust. And what the Holocaust—I mean, we we all know what the Holocaust did in in raw terms. You know, Six million, six million Jews, uh, exterminated for for the crime of, of their ethnic descent, right, which is no crime at all. But yeah, you know, this is this is the reason why uh, they are killed. And so the Holocaust does a, a couple of really important things. One, it creates as a moral imperative the idea that the, the Jewish state must be created now on the international sphere. Uh, Harry Truman, of course, a devout Baptist, uh, the American president at the time, a Democrat, I would note as well, um, and that comes into play uh, you know, more now, is very passionate about this idea and, and supports it as one of the first world leaders. Second, for Jews and for Israel uh, themselves, Israel becomes Zion, Zionism becomes not just a, like, how do we deal with the, the challenges of modernity? It becomes an existential necessity. Um, the the impact of the Holocaust and Zionism is it says, we must have a place where this can never happen to us again, where we'll be protected from the possibility that anyone will ever try to exterminate us as a people. And so that is what Israel becomes. It becomes in essence, a lifeboat, a place where any Jew, no matter how bad their circumstances in the other countries of the world that they're living in, has a place where they can go. Um, And so that idea is fundamental to Israel whenever Israel is talking about security, there's a possibility that we flip a switch and it becomes an existential issue, where it becomes an existential threat. And this, you know, you've got a nation that at their, at their foundation, there is the Holocaust and the trauma that's associated with that. Um, and so, you know, that that creates a resolve that anything that becomes an existential threat, Israel cannot rest and must be united in in removing that threat.
0: And so, you know, with the, the British, uh, the Palestinians, mandate, the British having control, they, they were reluctant to actually pull the trigger on anything. And so we come back to, to 1948, yep. and it was that auto-emancipation eman- that really triggers in, because Israel took the initiative.
6: Absolutely. So you have the U.N. resolution that creates uh, two states. Um, Israel accepts it. Um, And, you know, I forget which Israeli founder, but one of them said, you know, I would accept an Israel the size of a tablecloth. Um, And so they they accept the mandate, even though it's not advantageous to them. Uh, The Arab states reject it, and they reject it because they've gone through their own, they've got their own nationalist idea. And this is the idea of Arab nationalism. Very briefly, Arab nationalism is the idea that all the Arabs of the Middle East ought to be united into one nation. Um, but what is different about Arab nationalism is that there's kind of a, um, a supra- an ethno-supremacism that is, I, w- I would argue, kind of intrinsic in Arab nationalism. In other words, it's not just Jewish identity that they're objecting to, it's Kurdish identity. Uh, it's the identity of other ethnic and religious minorities that is being squashed by uh, Arab nationalism, because they, they can only support this one um, ethnic identity. Um, and so the Arabs automatically, you know, for for nationalist reasons and in, in many ways, reject the creation of the Jewish state. And so the message that all of the and all of the Arab states decide, okay, we're going to all work together um, and and try to wipe out this new Jewish state. And what they tell a lot of the Arabs in uh, the, the territory is we're going to go in and we're going to crush this and we're going to put an end to this Jewish state. So we want you to leave and then you know once once we're done crushing Israel, then you can come back you know, and then, of course, they lose the war. Um, And just to give your listeners an understanding of here what I mean by when they lose the war, the Arab armies were better armed. They were better trained. They were often Western trained. uh, They were often advised by Western officers, many of them German. Uh, Their equipment was often British. Um, You have a a very ragtag, Um, group of of folks that are unevenly armed defending Israel, Uh, many of whom are armed with sort of surplus AK-47s they bought, you know, third hand from the Czechs, uh, or from uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, Um, and they won. And it is historically, let's just put it this way, as somebody who studies military strategy and politics, it is historically unlikely, improbable, um, as a Christian I might say miraculous, uh, that that is in fact the outcome. Keep in mind that, you know, that promise that was made to the Arab population that we're going to go and we're going to wipe out the Jewish state and then you can move back is made by the Arab countries. And I will argue—and this is a controversial opinion—but I will argue that the reason that there is a Palestinian refugee crisis today is because of the Arab countries. And if you want, I can unpack that a well, little
0: bit more. I, I mean, I think that—when uh, you look back to the United Nations creating uh, what what we've talked about here on the program, UNRWA, which is a, a funding for yeah. uh, Palestinian refugees, and, and we see even today where these other Arab countries are refusing to take the individuals from Gaza— Because that would be an admission of defeat in terms of what they promised to do, would it not?
6: One thing that not a lot of people remember is that um, the immigrants that came to Israel weren't just coming from Europe. They're also Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews. These are Jews of Middle Eastern origin. Many of whom, 700,000 of whom, if I'm remembering the number correctly, and I I may be wrong, uh, but but hundreds of thousands of whom are expelled from the other Arab countries. There are large Jewish communities in Iraq, Yemen, Libya, Morocco, um, and all of these Jewish communities are expelled, and the Jews take them in these are people that would ethnically you would you would say are pretty pretty much Arab pretty much Middle Eastern the Jews take them in when the Arabs were expelled oftentimes not exclusively but mostly because the Arab states said hey leave your homes and, and eventually we'll give it back to you for Arab for ideological reasons, the Arab nationalist states did the opposite, because they're saying, well, we have to keep these people as as sort of a nation in being, um, You know, basically. Um, we'll keep them as refugees, because if we integrate them, then we we're acknowledging that we're never going to be able to take Israel back, and we're never going to be able to take them out. They try twice more They uh, in 67 and 73. They fail, and it's really in the process of that that this goes from an, an Arab nationalist thing, where the idea is we're going to have one unified Arab nation, of which this is going to be a province, and then you start to see the birth of a separate, distinct Palestinian nationalism. But I would argue that kind of happens as Arab nationalism as an ideology just fails.
0: So that brings us up to today, and unfortunately, uh, Dr. Nolte, we're, we're, we're out of time. We're going to have to have part two of this conversation to to talk about how this lays the groundwork for today and and how we look at this going forward. So unfortunately, we can't do that today. We're going to have to do that uh, a little bit later. Um, Dr. Nolte, always great to talk with you and, and make a note of where we stopped, because that's where we're going to pick up next time.
6: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, and I hope this uh, history is helpful for for your audience in understanding uh, what's happening.
0: Absolutely. Folks, I want to thank you for, for joining us today, and we will have part two of this. It, it's fascinating. We need to know our history so that we know where we're going, because it's policies that laid the groundwork for what we're experiencing today. All right. Until next time, I leave you once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing.
3: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported.